breaking news. We have more new friends, Don. We do. And again, you know, <laughs> making the assumption there. But, uh, you know, <laughs> colleagues <laughs> equals friends. That's what we're colleagues going equals after. friends. Yeah, Maybe so I just NAMSA... need more friends in my life. Maybe that's my, <laughs> right. my, my goal. But uh, you think so? Yeah, it's, it's great news. Great news. This is great news. NAMSA uh, grew by another two hundred and eighty some people, I think. So with the acquisition, uh, the first part of March that was announced of APS American Preclinical Services in Minneapolis. Super excited about this acquisition. Super excited to join with the team up there who I think we've all watched and and looked at and, and admired their growth over the last several years. And what an I, I'm excited about this one. It was on my Christmas list. <laughs> Christmas list granted and uh yeah sure. bringing together you know some some great things in terms of whether it be preclinical biocompatibility in terms of biological testing, chemical characterization, all of the above. So yes. Great time. Yes, many, many crossover. Uh, well, all crossover. I mean, we we all have a lot to learn from each other in doing some of these 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 business units together. So preclinical, biocomp, and analytical services or chemical characterization. Very excited about it. So with that, we have Dr. Yan Chen joining us. She's the Senior Director of Biocompatibility Services at APS. She received her PhD in pharmacology from the University of Illinois. Noi, not noise. <laughs> she has more than 18 years of experience in preclinical testing, both in pharmacology and biocompatibility space. And Dr. Chen serves as their primary voting member on multiple ISO TC194 working groups, those biocompatibility standards. So we had a lot of fun with Dr. Chen. She fit right in. And I think she did admit ultimately that we are now friends. She did. We convinced her. <laughs> so enjoy this episode and uh, thanks for listening. Welcome to Biocompatibility, the first ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMSA is happy to bring Biocompatibility to you, where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Biocompatibility. Another great new guest, another new NAMSA colleague, Don. I think we've yes. expanded. We've expanded our possibilities of people that can join us now with a new acquisition. <laughs> exactly. Our work friend group is expanding. Every our day. work friend. Yes, our work friend group. Well, so, I say that a little prematurely, I think, you know, as far as the, <laughs> let's just say colleague make, for now. All that. We're, well, we're assuming they want to be our friends. <laughs> we'll see. So we're welcoming, we're welcoming Dr. Yan Chen to uh, the podcast today. Welcome, Dr. Chen. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Yes, we're so excited. For those people that haven't heard um, or didn't catch it in our intro, Last week, we're real recording here on March 9th, I think, but a week ago, NAMSA announced the acquisition of American Preclinical Services, ooh, that's a hard one to say, APS in Minneapolis. So we quickly reached out to our new colleague, Dr. Chen, and asked her to come join the podcast. Thank you for being so willing 
being a one week NAMSA employee <laughs> to join the podcast today. Yep. Yep. No problem. It's my honor to be here. Oh, good. Good. Well, we, um, you know, all of our 10 listeners that aren't related to us are happy that you're here, I'm sure. So let's get into it a little bit. So I think the first thing I want to do is, is maybe have you share with us a bit of the history of APS and, you know, why this, this time, you know, joining NAMSA, why it feels right. I know we have lots of thoughts there as well. We're excited about joining our efforts with APS. So maybe you can share it with us from a APS perspective. Yeah, sure. Uh, APS is a medical device CRO located in Minneapolis. Uh, 15 years ago, Dr. Conforti founded the company starting out the uh, preclinical program, especially in interventional and surgical safety studies. Then very soon after that, we started the biocompatibility program. And five years ago, we added on the chemical analysis. Um, so over the years, we have been using the same responsiveness and technical expertise to run both the preclinical program and the biocomp. I think excellent. It, yeah, for uh, we are very excited for this acquisition because we firmly believe that both companies share the same goals, which is to provide high quality, comprehensive uh, service for medical device development program. Um, and uh, NAMSA is a global company, offers more than what we do, you know, from the preclinical pre program, our compatibility, clinical program, and the global uh, regulatory services. Uh, and uh, for APS, our strong suit is the preclinical program as well as the biocom. So by joint force, uh, we think it will be great to leverage the best practice and technical expertise between the two leading medical device CRO in the industry. And in addition to that, by joining the NAMSA family, we have a better financial resource for you know, further capacity expansion, which lead, will allow us to provide like quick turnaround time and a better service for our clients. So we are really excited yeah. for this opportunity. Oh, yeah, I agree. I think everything you said is are things that that we've thought about as well. Certainly, we've been well aware of APS's position in the preclinical market and the absolute strength there and, and market dominance of APS. So we're happy to add that to our, you know, we obviously had some preclinical offering. We just weren't at the level that APS was. So now as a combined force, it's really a, a great thing. And, and of course, NAMSA historically leading the market in, in biocompatibility. And so happy to have you guys on board there to help with expansion and growth. And as you mentioned, best practices, learning from each other. I just think it's really, it's an exciting time to join. And, you know, we, you know, several months ago when there was an announcement about NAMSA being, you know, the majority ownership going to this investment firm, we anticipated things like this coming. And honestly, APS was on my Christmas wish list. So, um, wow. <laughs> so Santa, Santa delivered. I have one more thing on my wish list. So far, he's two for two. So I'm hoping the next one happens That's as well. Great. That's awesome. Uh, it's exciting time to be in this industry. So exciting. Yeah. And it just, I mean, just, Listening to the description of APS and for those people that know, like historically what NAMSA was thought of in terms of, you know, overall biocompatibility. I mean, it does just seem like a really good fit 
for the two companies to to go together. So uh, yeah, it should be a good, a good, exciting time here, and uh, a lot of you know details I'm sure to be ironed out by people above my pay grade, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. I wish they were above my pay grade. I don't think the pay grade matters right now. I know I've been in several meetings. <laughs> I've been in several meetings already talking about things. Obviously being the product manager for biocompatibility, this is this is exciting for me, aligning our test offerings. And there's just obviously we have a lot of work to do to ensure you know, number one, that our customers are taken care of. And both companies are very focused right now on making sure, number one, that happens regardless of what's happening behind the scenes in the um, integration, right? Customer service and customer services are number one. And the rest of it, we all get to work out behind the scenes somehow. <laughs> right. <laughs> best. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I just think there's a great marriage between preclinical and and its importance in the medical device development process and and what comes later but for those folks that are you know obviously we're we're biocompatibility we're here to talk about biocompatibility but i think there might be some companies or some people listening that don't really understand the importance of preclinical obviously not every device type has to have a preclinical model study for efficacy and so maybe can you can you give us a little bit of the importance of preclinical work in the role of medical device development? Yep, sure. Uh, so just like you mentioned, uh, for I, I will break down into two parts. You know, in the early, very early stage of the pro project, you know, stages, uh, a lot of people want to run using the preclinical study to uh, test the device function, you know, as an efficacy study, like early stage, um, because, you know, when you have a bright idea of medical device and you want to bring that to market, it, sometimes it's a bumpy road, right? You, you want to... Uh, oh, the bumps, the bumps, <laughs> lots of bumps. <laughs> right? uh, I hope it's smooth, but sometimes not always the case. Right. Um, so, so the preclinical study in the early stage is really useful to kind of give you an idea what how the devices function inside the body and what's the potential risk you haven't thought about it. So this is a, like a big part of our uh, service to help the client with the design modification if it's necessary and help them to build, you know, sometimes even like just material screening uh, as well. Uh, so that is the one part and also on the you know, later stage of the program, especially for some complex devices, uh, the GLP safety study is often required by regulatory agency as well. Um, so that's why a lot of time we will also run the study with GLP uh, for their final submission. Okay, great. Yeah. Don, you have, you have something you want to add there? I thought I heard you try to pipe in. I, I was just thinking about, um, you know, those differences in terms of, you know, sometimes what I guess expectations companies may have for incorporating things into the design of maybe even sometimes maybe a little bit too soon in the story, but you know, trying to all of a sudden address biocompatibility in a general sense when they're just at those preliminary stages versus at the, you know, the GLP safety type study where it's a little bit more defined. But you know, it always makes me wonder, you know, how often customers actually come into a preclinical study of some type 
and actually ask that the study be designed with the thought of biocompatibility overall in the study design versus, you know, kind of forcing it in after the fact <laughs> in some cases. Yeah, I think, yeah. Go ahead, Jan. Uh, I think you asked a really good question. I want to say, if you ask me the same question a few years ago, the later is definitely more common. But we are happy to see the new trend is more and more company start to consider biocomp when they start, you know, in the initial stage, uh, when they plan the uh, preclinical studies. So that's a, that's a really good trend we like to see. And also sometimes uh, when the company have a pre-submission uh, meeting with the regular agency, sometimes they will also suggest or, you know, recommend using this approach. That's good news to hear for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, th I think it will, uh, you know, certainly make the jobs of, of some people later on a little bit easier knowing that companies are, are beginning to, you know, think about biocompatibility, you know, when they should early on for studies like this, because these studies can be so powerful in so many different ways. And obviously, yeah. safety, efficacy are the common things that people think about. But then just all of the stuff you can get in terms of biocompatibility endpoints out of them, if designed and thought about in advance, you know, it's, it's, it's just speaks to the power of the study. And uh, Jan, you mentioned something that, you know, certain devices, it is required when we use that term loosely, right? Strongly suggested to do a preclinical study. What types of, can you give us some examples of, of what types of devices are typically required or there's expected to see a preclinical GLP study? for either FDA or, or other markets? Yeah, typically, uh, devices with considered high risk, like type three, sometimes type two as well. Or if you have like a really brand new idea uh, on novel materials, uh, something like uh, the regular agency never seen the same product on the market before, that will be highly suggested <laughs> to perform the preclinical study. And also, Another category is, we may have some overlap between the categories, but some of the device involve like a special appli clinical applications, such as like, for example, like a cardiac ablation ablate system. A lot of time we will either use a cryo uh, ablation or use a radio frequency. In those kind of situations, if you just use a standard traditional biocompatibility testing, we are not be able to cover the application, you know, either heat or cold, what does that do to the patient and what kind of additional risk uh, we are going to bring to the patient during the treatment. Same thing as like uh, nowadays, there are a lot of neurostimulator devices sure. that we are not just looking at the materials, the manufacturer process, we're also looking at, you know, continuous stimulation. Is that going to cause any issues for patient? So those are great examples that preclinical program will help us to as closely to clinical setting as possible compared to the sure. pump. Sure. So that's a great point. I hadn't even thought about that. So the, the procedures themselves, not just, I always think of implants, stents, heart valves, like those types of things that you want to put in there and see how they work, but the actual procedures themselves, we might be talking, we not be might not be talking about a long-term implant, but a new methodology we're using that's using a medical device to treat an illness 
would then a preclinical study, you're going to learn a lot how it, you know, how it affects the body. That that's a really that's a that's a good point. I hadn't thought I'm not obviously involved in preclinical a ton, but you know, I hadn't thought about that application as much. Yeah. And also another uh, good reason to use preclinical is the model specific requirement. So for some product, uh, let's say like wound dressing, you can absolutely use the, the uh, bar comp model to test the, the safetyness. However, the, like the skin healing mechanism is, between, is different between the models. So mm-hmm. a lot of time, you know, regular agency will highly suggest use large model, you know, the, uh, the, as a preclinical program using that model to instead of the small model, in vivo model, uh, because yep. it's more close to what human skin works. Yep. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, when you mentioned the neurostimulation, for whatever reason, I, I, I seem to be involved in quite a few of those um, <laughs> lately. And, you know, and you bring up a good point about the, you know, the stimulation effect causing some type of local tissue response or otherwise. But then, you know, you think about the externals as well for some of these devices. If you have an external charging system and, you know, is there, you know, an issue with heat generated as it's being charged and all that stuff? Yeah, if if you're doing a little muscle implant study in rabbits for BioCop, yeah, you're not going to (laughs) have the charging system, you know, hooked up and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it, it definitely uh, has a lot of advantages, I think, that it can bring to, to, to the forefront for this type of study. Yep, that's a good point. Yep, I agree. Yeah, so the importance of simulating what's going to happen in a clinical setting, I think, is really a key point in looking at these. And I think that's why a lot of programs, from what I hear the buzz around NAMSA, people talking about how we tie our preclinical data to our clinical data, because, if, you know, we have both of those end-to-end services. And so getting those teams to talk together when we're developing a preclinical as to how it might affect clinical design later on is fascinating to me, how the importance of tying those things together and making sure our preclinical data can be supportive of how we're going to design our clinical trial. Yeah, I agree. And also sometimes we have like, we, we have a lot of this kind of cases when we have like failed file comp endpoint. And a lot of time we can use, or even chemical analysis data, sometimes we can use the preclinical study, safety study to help as a, well, it's not going to be, you know, completely overrode the result. However, you can use that as additional material to help justify the risk. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Very interesting. It's a, it's real interesting. Um, You know, I'm, and I'm I think it's one of the just things. Just get up there someday and see it all. <laughs> Go ahead, Don. Sorry. No, no, I was just wondering, you know, I, I hadn't even, I was kind of like jotting down a list of things that we commonly see preclinical studies address and using it as a, like, part of your failure investigation for some of your routine biocomp studies wasn't something I had on my, you know, list because, you know, I commonly think of, you know, local tissue effects, implantation, hemocompatibility, systemic yeah. toxicity, those types of endpoints that are biocompatibility related, you know, where people directly try to address them. But yeah, it it takes it to another level when you could even certainly use it for failure investigation of your biocomp testing um, or something related to it. um, uh, For sure, that's that's 
a great use of that. And it just speaks to the power of the, again, of what you can get out of the preclinical studies if, if thought of in the context of biocom. Mm-hmm. You know, I know we talk about it often, Don, when we talk about, you know, developing what's our biological evaluation going to look like when it comes to testing and that upfront evaluation and how all data is good data to review. And we've had a number of times where people have said, well, I have this non-GLP preclinical study. Does that, does that matter? Like, do you want to look at that? And we're like, absolutely. Let's look at it. I mean, it's data, you know, it's more information to help tell the story and, and tell your case. So even those early studies, um, you know, I, I think from, from our perspective, when we talk about biocomp, when you're looking at how much testing do I really need to do? Those are important to let your, your specialists or your toxicologist review because there may be nuggets of information in there that they can help to support your case for biocomp. Absolutely. And I think uh, in using them, you know, we'll going for depending on the scope of the study that, that you currently have, you know, it, you know, what you hope to get out of it in terms of biocompatibility will then, you know, speak to what, what's in the study at that time. If it's one of those early feasibility type studies, eh, you, you might be a little disappointed in what you find because when somebody says, hey, we got preclinical data and you're like, oh, excited, great. And then you find out that it was one, one you know, subject and, and <laughs> that was it. And <laughs> the study lasted two days and you have a permanent implant and you're like, oh, okay, yeah. You have a study, but you know, again, it's it's something to work with, and 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 you can move on from there. Right. Yeah, it's another point. It's another point of reference, right? So I know we've talked about. So uh, I guess with the crossover. I want to get into a little bit more the the crossover of of using. I'm not going to call it a crossover. That's not the right word. Maybe the 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 marriage of using preclinical and biocomp, you know, together using preclinical to help evaluate biocompatibility endpoints um, since I'm, we're supposed to be talking about biocompatibility, I guess, but uh, <laughs> that's what our title tells me. But so, so I think about implant studies, obviously like local tissue effects, like Don mentioned is a big one um, that, that you can do. And we know there's lots of specific requirements in, you know, the ISO document as far as how many you have to have and, you know, your controls and da, 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 da. So those are ones that I know that, that folks often try to merge in with their preclinical study. Can you talk a little bit about maybe how you design um, or look at designing those types of projects that will put preclinical and, and biocomp together? How challenging it can be looking at the ISO standard and trying to make sure that the preclinical program meets what it needs? Yep, Absolutely. Like you just mentioned, um, the implantation, the local tissue response is the most commonly used in the preclinical study, especially when the device needs to be implanted, you know, depends on the, the size uh, or the function or the tissue contact of the device. Sometimes we do want a clinical relevant location, like brain implant or, you know, like nerve stimulator. You do want the device in the relevant a tissue location instead of the muscle implant. That is uh, uh, something to keep in mind. And also the thrombogenicity is a, if the device contact blood. This is another endpoint we very often assess in the preclinical program as well. Uh, you know, thinking about heart valve, 
um, the traditional NAVI model, the traditional thrombogenicity test is not a great fit. Uh, actually, the guideline even highly suggests using the preclinical uh, system the model to for the thrombogenicity assessment. Turn out to be uh, the anatomy is more suitable, and also the uh, the duration is uh, way better compared to if we test a heart valve within four hours intubation. You know, it's not a really truly predict the risk. So, sure. uh, and another one is the systemic tox. This one is a uh, pretty tricky. The reason for that is because the guideline, well, first of all, the guideline have a pretty solid requirement for number of animals and, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> for it's number okay. of uh, models and uh, also uh, like how many implants you need to, if we do implant. And we also want to elevate those a lot of time for systemic talks. That become a little bit challenging, especially when we use a preclinical program, um, when we add more more. A number, a sample size, often it you know increase the cost dramatically. Uh, and right. a, another challenge uh, sometimes people overlook is when we use the preclinical um, program. Uh, depends on which model you are choosing. Sometimes they are not as you know will come with some like background of a normality compared to the the models the in vivo model we choose for biocompatibility. So we really want, because we have like a pathologist, they really know what to expect from these models. What is considered background? It's not test article related. Those will right. help uh, a lot. So that. Yeah, I, I know systemic talks, I think, is one that people often ask us about doing. And as you mentioned, it's very challenging because preclinical, you're trying to be as close to what's going to happen in the clinical setting, but systemic tox, as you mentioned, we have to exaggerate exposure by so much. It's kind yeah. of a, it's really hard to, really hard to do. Yep. Yep. I agree. But nowadays we use the chemical analysis. Um, sure. That, that often that, that would take care of the systemic tox. So what our suggestion is doing the preclinical program as well as a chemical analysis. Yep. Excellent. And you definitely get into those situations, at least I've seen them before, where, you know, companies, they they want to say that their preclinical study is a systemic tax study. But like you said, they don't want to put the animal numbers in that it formally requires, especially male, female, separate test and control groups and all that stuff. And yeah. and so it becomes systemic-like. Systemic-ish. Systemic-ish. We took some blood, we took some organs, it sort of had some parameters that made it feel like a systemic study, but it just wasn't quite, yeah, but yeah, yeah. And, but just knowing that, like you said, so that you can have a alternate plan, a backup plan, an additional plan in terms of chemical characterization, some sort of analysis that allows you to address that. Um, yep. I mean, that's, that's perfect if, again, if, if you have the the knowledge and, and where we follow up front to, to make sure that happens. Yeah. Imagine that we're going back to making sure you plan things correctly and, it's crazy and concept. Uh, you know, crazy concept to actually have a plan to evaluate all these things. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I so agree. I think one of the things I, you know, we, we talked about sharing is, you know, some experiences where 
uh, with submissions um, and the importance of a good preclinical data set to not derail a project. I mean, preclinical as well as clinical, as well as, you know, biocomp, any of these things, you know, not well researched and developed can can derail a project. So I know I had one where um, the company was using their preclinical model to evaluate thrombogenicity of an aortic stent graft. But because the preclinical protocol didn't specifically call out ISO 10993 part four and didn't specifically address that we were going to look at thrombo the way we needed to in there, that, you know, they had to repeat a thrombogenicity study. Now, this was several years ago. I think it was for a Japanese submission, but, you know, there was no clear plan, no clear protocol that that endpoint was going to be evaluated in their preclinical study. So that required them to have to redo that. And that, and then we didn't have any in vitro alternatives for thrombogenicity like, like we do now at APS. And so they had to do a large model study, which was very costly. And of course, we had to do it stat, which was even more costly because, <laughs> you know, had to be done right now as in yesterday. So a huge expense and a potential real derailment of their submission to get on the market in Japan. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I had a very similar cases before as well. And sometimes uh, the regular agency even question about like the photograph was taken for this endpoint. Uh, sometimes they don't agree the quality of the image <laughs> and, and trying to push back. So yeah, that, that I mean, have a really good plan ahead of time, have a good protocol is very important to um, for the preclinical studies. I think, you know, we all learn from mistakes. We all learn from the, the, the failed cases, unfortunately. So we have run the uh, GLP safety studies for uh, 15 years. So I think what we learn from it, we trying to accumulate all those regulatory response and tailed it down and incorporate those feedback into our protocol template. So, uh, you know, with the experience, we know what kind of question may come out, what, what is, what kind of rabbit hole we should try to avoid. <laughs> right. So, yeah, that, that is how we trying to improve. Uh, one example is like the ACT management for the thrombogenicity testing, you know, especially when we trying to do it in the preclinical program. Because in the preclinical program, we're just trying to mimic as close to the clinical setting as possible. So a lot of times the ACT management, I have to admit in the early stage, the ACT management was not great. And we found over the years, the regular agency pay more and more attention to this ACT management. And, uh, and we try and almost try and turn it into a, like a research project to <laughs> look at the PKPD, the response between the different models and how, you know, how to, how to make, you know, how do we dose uh, the, the system? How do we get a better consistent ACT level during the, the study? Um, so those are the things we keep, keep, you know, keep avoiding uh, mistakes yeah. and keep improve over time. And another example I have is like sometimes we need to be really careful when we choose the model in the front end um, because uh, a lot of a lot of times the anatomic difference between the model can really impact the study outcome. Mm, yeah. Excellent point. Yeah, we, we 
uh, one time we had a device that I, I don't want to go to too details. Sure. But, yep. it, you know, it, it, when we implant into the preclinical system, the result is completely different than expected. Then later on, found out because the anatomic difference, totally how the body function compared to human is different and mm -hmm. uh, will help the client with the justification and get approval. But those yeah, are very key. interesting. Yeah. Don, what about you? Have you seen any? any uh... there's, what? There's... What? There's all kinds of stories to tell <laughs> in this area. Don is full of stories. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, I, I think the, uh, the 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 favorite one that that I can recall is is you know literally having the raw data for a preclinical study sent to me so that I could scour through the raw data and find out if thrombogenicity was anywhere to be found as an evaluation <laughs> point in the preclinical stu study. Um, <laughs> And and that's just like, like you say, that's the situation you don't want to get yourself into because it's an afterthought, not a forethought regarding the study design. So it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but I, I will say, you know, in, you know, the last several years, you know, I don't know, five years or even more, you know, just the, again, the forethought that companies are having now to think about biocomp when they think about preclinical, it's, it's definitely improved. And 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 it's hopefully will continue to get better for sure. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and it, it, Don, what you what you just said just remind me one thing to keep in mind is when you choose GLP versus non-GLP for the preclinical study, it's not just a price difference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is um, very important, especially for the early feasible study. You know it. If you don't know what the device is going to look like, uh, we highly suggest to run a, a small scale, short duration, non-GLP study just to see how, because we don't want any surprise in the GLP safety studies. But later on, when we fully evaluate the safetyness, we have to consider a GLP study. We have some clients came when they are already ready for submission, the studies are already completed, the report was generated, they want to come back ask us to convert a non-GLP study to GLP. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, magic, where's your magic wand? Come on. Right? <laughs> oh, we may, if we can go back time, maybe you can make it, make that change. That is a great point. That is a really yeah. great point. I think that one's a bigger struggle than searching through raw data, trying to find the thrombogenicity <laughs> endpoint. Um. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if we have a GLP wizard that can pull that one off. Yeah, that's that takes uh, some magic. And certainly, yeah. you know, it's we we joke about it, but you know, obviously seriously GLP's a a big deal and it's a a very stern, I don't know, stern, you know, regulation guidance. I call it an operating system and you you just can't mess with it. I mean, you're either GLP or you're not. There's it's kind of like, what did they say? You're either pregnant or you're not. You're either GLP or you're not. You can't be a little bit GLP. There we go. GLP-ish. No GLP-ish. I'm GLP-like. GLP-like. <laughs> My systemic-like study is sort of GLP. No. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love that. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that is a, that's a really good point. Excellent, excellent point to make. You know, we touched on it briefly, and we've had an episode before about hemocompatibility and, you know, the in vitro blood loop. And I think 
today there's maybe that different kind of solution that we didn't have years ago when my customer had that problem is the the analysis that can be done using an in vitro model for thrombogenicity. So I don't know if you could share a little bit. I know you guys have a little more regulatory experience with it than we do. We, we, not you and we, we are we, right? <laughs> the legacy APS studies versus NAMSA have, have a little more experience with regulatory submissions of the thrombo, the in vitro thrombogenicity. So maybe I, I'm sure some of our listeners would, would like an update on, on how that's looking and, and what you're finding out from regulators. Yep, absolutely. Uh, for those audience that are not familiar with this model, this is called uh, in vitro blood loop. This is the in vitro alternative for the traditional thrombogenicity testing, uh, the in vivo one. Because um, over the years, we found out it's really challenging. There's a lot of model limitation for the in vivo thrombogenicity testing, especially the NAVI model the non-anticoagulated venous implant model. Yep. Um, yep. So the idea of this in vitro model is we, instead of using the in vivo system, we're just taking the fresh jog blood and fill four-field bypass tubing and run it as close to the in vivo model as possible. So we will maintain the temperature close to the body temperature, incubate the device inside the loop with a set you know, set of flow and incubate normally four hours, uh, then we will uh, ev evaluate the thrombogenicity endpoint. Uh, the biggest advantage is we have compared to the in vivo model that has a lot of variabilities regarding to uh, either anatomy or, you know, just the, the you know, in vivo is yep. always come with variations. So the in vitro system has a much uniform system or the we don't have a different vessel size because it's all uniform. And also we incorporate the positive and negative control into the system. Tell us what exactly is the blood working. If it's not working as, as expected, we know what caused the, the failure or what if the if the result is questionable. Yep. Uh, so that's the biggest ad advantage. Also, since we're using in vitro, we can we can uh, increase the sample size <laughs> mm. to have a better uh, statistics power. Sure. When we talk about science, yep. and N equal to two is a kind of horrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and regarding to regulatory, we have been using this method for developing this method for seven years, about seven years. And we had a few rounds of review, data review with FDA. And, and they provide a lot of good suggestions, and we also provide a lot of uh, additional data to them. I won't say this method is officially approved because it's not in any guideline right now. Uh, however, we have having a lot of time using this model for their pre-submission or final submission and got approval uh, in lieu of the, the, the in vivo model. So that's very exciting. It's very exciting, you know, with in vitro irritation coming on board as of recently, you know, I think these are definitely is where the future is for many of these models. Uh, I don't think in vivo is ever going away completely, but the more we can do these in vitro models and put emphasis on the three R's, it's really a positive for our industry. What about outside U.S.? Any, do you know of any European submissions or... Uh, probably not Japan or China, but maybe Europe. Do you know if we have any experience with the notified bodies accepting it? 
So uh, the caveat is we don't always know if the case right. success. <laughs> uh, so I, I don't know how yeah, many. Note to customers, we don't know it works unless you tell us, right? <laughs> right, right. All, more often we'll be yelled when we did something that, you know. Right, not we, we find out when it doesn't work, but we don't find out when it does. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> we don't know exactly how many cases went through uh, okay. outside, uh, like, European, um, but just just speaking of my my feeling, I think you know once they are exposed to more data, they will happy to accept this model compared to the in vivo. Yeah, that'll be my guess. Yeah, I think we have we have a few listeners from Notified Bodies. So anybody wants to email us and tell us if you all have a a position in your specific Notified Body, we'd love to hear it <laughs> because I think that you know. It's important we, we we're able to share as much as we can. Like you said, we only know what we know. And so getting feedback from different agencies is absolutely critical for us in development, advancement, recommendation of of different test models. So yeah. That's yeah, very exciting. The, yeah, I think the key thing is just like the in vitro irritation, right? The method is great, but what we need to do is show the regulatory body how good this method is, how equivalent or even better this method compared to the in vivo. Yep. Yep. I I think it's about time for two truths and a lie. Uh, unless did, (laughs) did I miss anything, Don? I realized I've forgotten to give out my special link. So for those of you that want to learn more about the NAMSA and APS, the acquisition, and how you can work with us, you can go to www.namsa.com slash APS, and that'll link you right to a page where it has the press release and you can request some more information. So failed to give that link earlier. Hopefully y'all are still listening. So www.namsa.com slash APS, and that'll take you right to a page where you can learn more. So Two truths and a lie. Are we ready? I actually just wrote mine because I forgot until I realized we were about to get there. Did you guys remember? I remember uh, when we started, but <laughs> did, well, I have. You remembered? I I do. How can I forget? I never played this game before. <laughs> <laughs> oh yay we're exciting we're introducing you to something oh no 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 this is the fun part this is absolutely it is all downhill from here you really don't even have yeah. to you know we're all just uh having fun so since i was um since i failed to do mine earlier and i did mine just two minutes ago i'll go first so um my first one is i've never been involved with the design of a preclinical study number two is during uh, a preclinical study experience, I was able to hold a beating heart in my hand. And yeah. number three, I once thought that I wanted to be a pathologist. What do I do when I have two lies? <laughs> I don't know. Ooh, do. Did I stump you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, this I'm is go with number three. Number three I'm, is the lie. I'm yeah. thinking about the same thing. <laughs> Yeah, I that is that is not appealing to me at all. <laughs> I can't imagine looking through a microscope all day and going, "Oh, this is good. This is bad. This, yeah, nope, no, thank you." 
But yes, yeah. I have, I did hold a beating heart and I've never really been involved in any design. I may have hooked up a customer with somebody that could talk about it, but yeah, that's, as that's far close as enough. Goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But okay. All right. Jan, you want to go next? Me? Yeah. Yep. Um, okay. Let me see. So my first one is uh, when performing device extraction, surface area-based extraction ratio is strongly preferred uh, by regulatory agencies, especially FDA, over the compared to the weight volume ratio. Even though for some device is like a gel in gel form in some cases. Okay. That's my first one. My second one is when uh, assess thrombogenicity studies. Uh, we have to use the NAVI model, which is a non-anticoagulated model, uh, to before you can move as a worst-case scenario. Before you can move to the AVI model, which is with heparin on board, uh, even though your device is, mm. you know, you have, you think your device is very likely to fail the NAVI model, you have to show the failure before you can move on to the to the AVI model. Okay. Third one is there's one time. There's a regulatory response stated that ACT management is very critical for thrombogenicity assessment. Even a garden hose can pass that test if the ACT level is high enough. <laughs> That's a classic. <laughs> that is classic. Um, oh, man. That's so good, it's got to be true. That has to be true, right? And I, I, I mean, that's this is the whole thing. The truth is funnier than fiction. Even a garden hose can. <laughs> I'm gonna say number two is the lie because there was a must in there. Don, what do I'll you think? Number two as well. Yep, you got it. All right, <laughs> well done. Uh, the garden hose. That's a classic one. That is. That is. That Even I don't garden think... hose can pass. <laughs> Even a garden hose could pass. Don and I used to joke that, you know, biocomp is so easy, even a monkey can do it. So that seems like, you know, even a garden hose can pass a throttle. <laughs> nothing to coagulate. Put enough yeah. pepper in there, we, you're all good. Also, we would we would say that jokingly because it's not that easy, but some people think it's that easy. So that's yeah. why we would make that joke. It's so easy. Just go to the table and check the boxes. Anyway, <laughs> right. I digress. Okay, Don, you're up. Yeah, and I just realized that half of mine we already talked about, so the answer, mine are going to be real easy. So, oh. you know, yeah, gave them away in, in my, so the first one especially. Well, you, you assume we were listening to you. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> he laughed, so I thought you were listening. Mm. <laughs> Might have been an inside okay. joke. Anyways. I mean, it's habit. I just laugh every now and then to make you feel good. Yeah, that's fine. I'm easy. <laughs> so more than once. I've evaluated a preclinical report to try to uncover if thromboresistance was actually evaluated. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Anyways, um, I've been in a situation where acute subchronic chronic implantation and hemocompatibility have all been addressed successfully for the FDA through a preclinical study. That's a long one, isn't it? Um, third one, I have had FDA promote the use of preclinical studies to avoid the use of additional in vivo biocompatibility studies. There's a lie. <laughs> oh. Yeah, right. That one of those is a lie. I'm gonna say, details. Yeah, I think there was too many things listed in number two. Way too many endpoints listed. So I'm going number two is a lie. All right. 
kind of wish number two is true, but sometimes know, right? acute, acute systemic tox is Man, tricky. She uh, is good. She is good. <laughs> Sherry so, got it, but she she got it with the explanation. She knew the why. It was acute that did me in. Oh, excellent. <laughs> that was a really good round of two truths and a lie. Even my last minute ones ended up being okay. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I'm better under pressure. Um, so anyway, I, I'm just, I think it, this has been so much fun. Thank you for joining us. I'm so happy to have you and all of your colleagues, but especially you now that I know you better uh, as a new NAMSA colleague and friend, right? Um, now we can, now we're going to assume you're our friend. Yeah, we, have friends. Um, we are friends now. And you know, we're excited and I can't wait to get up to Minneapolis and, and meet some folks safely, right? When it's all safe and, and we can we can sit around a table and, and enjoy getting to know one another better. So thank you for joining us. It's been a blast. So we'll hope to have you back sometime. Think of a topic, come back. For sure. We can talk about it again. Yeah, sure. <laughs> this is a fun. <laughs> Good. All right. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy biocompatibility, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com slash resources slash podcast.